Join me as we pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we have already been praying in many ways, both uh, verbally in uh, words and then in the prayers that we have sung. And you have been reminding us today, Lord, that uh, you are incarnate in us and you are revealed in us. And that we are the ones who go out to the people of this world and of our community and of our families. And so continue now to fill us with your word that we might be those fit and appropriate receptacles for the glory of Christ. That there might be nothing in us that will detract from the beauty of Jesus. That the kind of people we are in these relationships, in our family, with our friends, in our places of work and in the neighborhood, that the kind of people we are will only reinforce the truth of what we speak. That we might be men and women whose lives adorn and make beautiful the gospel of Christ. Thank you that you work with each one of us patiently. Thank you that your word is sometimes a hammer, sometimes a fire, sometimes a chisel. But it is also grain and bread and water and honey. It is light and heat. And so whatever it needs to be for each one of us this morning, we pray. You have brought us here under difficult external circumstances. And so we believe that every one of us is here by divine appointment on this day at this time to hear what you have to say to us. So we would again very specifically take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus at this time. We come against every other uh, source of thinking that is contrary to your word. We tear down every argument, every stronghold, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and Christ. And we pray, Father, that with renewed minds we might be a more renewed people. In Jesus' name, Amen. <coughs> Those of you who read uh, Reader's Digest will know that there's a little section in every little, every little magazine called uh, Quotable Quotes. And in the uh, March 2004 issue of Reader's Digest, uh, in the Quotable Quotes section, uh, singer-composer-musician Ray Charles had a quote. It says, live every day like it's your last because one day you're going to be right. Well, actually, he died three months later. Now, I have no idea whether this man actually lived according to this principle or not, nor do I know whether this enabled him to live wisely. In fact, being a Hollywood-type entertainer, most of us are likely to dismiss these are, are smart-alecky comments that come from these people, said more for effect than anything else. But it might be harder to dismiss another man who said the same thing. His name is Stephen Jobs, and he's well-known as the founder and of CEO of Apple, the makers of Macintosh and iPod and whatnot. And in, in, in the midst of what, at least for me, is one of the most brilliant commencement addresses I've ever heard, 2005 graduation at Stanford University, he said these words. He said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death leaving only what is truly important. Now, I don't know whether Jobs was a Christian or not, as far as I know, he isn't. But James would completely agree with this sentiment. And in the passage that we are going to be looking at today, as we work our way through the study of the book of James, uh, he's going to show us how this kind of a perspective on life and eternity, the unpredictability of it, not just the brevity, because Jobs has been alive for quite a while, uh, as well as what lies on the other side, helps us to in fact make wise choices and live wisely in three very critical dimensions of our life. When it comes to planning, 
when it comes to our possessions, and when it comes to persevering under difficult circumstances. James 3, 4, 4, 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you, don't, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Extensive travel for the purpose of making money and succeeding in business was actually quite a well-known part of first century Greco-Roman and Palestinian society as well. And much like most people today, these people who traveled decided where they were going, when they were going, how long they were going, what they were going to do there, and for what purpose, specifically to succeed in business. Not only were they confident, independent people, they evidently boasted and bragged about being in this way. In fact, in the original language it says, you boast in your arrogance. In other words, they not only were self-confident people who planned like this, they took great pride in that, and part of that pride was probably looking down upon people who weren't that confident and maybe who were much more diffident in life. And perhaps there were people in the body of Christ who had this kind of a calling, and who maybe were being infiltrated with this kind of self-confident approach to planning. And so James reminds them, he says, listen, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And he reminds them of the incredible brevity of life. And he says, you ought to be doing all this planning with a clear acknowledgement of the fact that your life is in God's hands. Not only does he determine the duration of your life, He's actually sovereign over all of the details of your life as well. And therefore to plan in self-confident independence of God is not only just bragging and boasting, but it in fact becomes sin. That's sort of the essence of what he is saying. Now the purpose of this passage is not to make us such fearful people who say, oh my goodness, I may die any moment. And then pull back from this world, make no decisions, make no plans and do nothing. That's not his point. Nor is this a thesis against capitalism. That we shouldn't be having businesses to make money. His whole point is that we should not be, when it comes to this dimension of planning ahead in our lives, we should have nothing to do with the kind of self-confident planning that is totally independent of God and leaves them out of the picture. So that's the negative side. What can we say then about wise planning? I think we can say that planning is appropriate and necessary. Uh, you can't read this sheet. That's my plan for the next 12 months. There's uh, six speaking engagements, four of which are overseas. There's 12 board meetings, two leadership retreats, four elders' prayer retreats, 11 meetings with worship leaders once a month, six other dinner meetings with some couples that Sham and I meet with regularly, four weddings. So I have determined where I'm going to go, how long I'm going to stay there, for what purpose. I'm doing everything that James's people were doing. I have to do it. The problem is, you see, none of these dates could be fixed without all the other dates being fixed. So I do this every year. We have a long-range planning committee in our church. Four of our elders have been meeting nearly 18 months, and will continue to do so for the next several years. Looking ahead, not just at next year, but the next five to ten years in the history of our church. But, but is it biblical? 
what's my basis for saying that just because we do it, it's right to do it? Well, the Apostle Paul, who probably lived more than anybody else under an acute sense of the sovereignty of God, happily surrendered his entire life, didn't worry about whether he was going to die or not. Uh, What does he do? Here's a letter that he writes to the Corinthian church. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey, wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Well, that sounds like a lot of planning to me. I'm going to come and see you in Macedonia. Oh, by the way, I'm going to Ephesus first. Here's why I'm going to Ephesus. I'm going to stay there until Pentecost. I'm going to stay with you for a long time, maybe for a little while. He was planning where he was going, when he was going, how long he was going to stay there, all the stuff that we do. So it's, it's very clear that this kind of planning is absolutely essential. So that's the first thing that we can say. The second thing that we can add to it though is that it needs to be done in humble dependence upon God. In the same passage that I just read for you, I deliberately left out four words, which I'll put them back in. He adds the words, if the Lord permits. In other words, he did exactly what James said you should do. And and the point I want to make is this is not a magic formula. These are not four words that you throw into your own plans and dignify it and make it look religious. In fact, it doesn't matter whether you ever say the words at all or not. It has to do with the underlying attitude. Is it a fixed, settled aspect of your life that when you plan, you plan in the conscious awareness that God is in charge of everything. And one of the things that shows that you in fact are that kind of a person is how you react when your plans go astray. (laughs) Look at Paul's responses when he was writing to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, (laughs) but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. So obviously he planned many times to come to Rome. And he was frustrated in that plan many times. But now he's getting ready to come. <laughs> but notice his attitude though. His attitude says, oh, God's in charge of all of this. In fact, he has timed it so that my effect may be maximal for the kingdom of God. By the way, when he actually entered Rome, he entered as, a, as a, uh, somebody under house arrest. Which, so even this plan didn't materialize. So I think this matter of if it be your will, Lord, is not so much a matter of a formula as much as an attitude. And one of the ways that attitude is shown is how do we react when our plans don't materialize? Are we then willing to say, a sovereign God who's in charge of the details of my life is working in such a way as to maximize His purposes through me? So those are two things we can say about it. Now, at the end of this section, James seems to add a verse that doesn't seem to belong. After saying all this, everything makes sense. He says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Almost sounds like he smuggled in a proverb from somewhere and thrown it in the middle. And and there are some commentators who think that's what James is all about. A whole bunch of proverbs strung together. But but that word then in the original language is therefore. He, He says that because he has said all these other things. So how does this statement, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do its sins, fit into this context of what we've talked about as wise planning in humble dependence upon God? I think first and foremost it simply means now that you guys know how you should be planning and you don't do it, that's not just arrogance anymore, it's sin. See, to know 
uh, whether something is God's will or not. It's not just an attitude, as I said, although that's important. It also means you avail of all of the ways in which you find out God's will. This part of the plan came from my head. But we do other planning. I'm in the midst of planning our preaching calendar for next year. I don't do that by myself. I spend a lot of time praying about it. Uh, as we discuss it as a staff, the elders get to see it. People make suggestions. It is continually being revised based on what God is doing all around us. And so when you plan, it's not even enough just to have the right kind of attitude, which is good. But do you also avail of all of the other means that God has put at our disposal to determine whether your plans are likely to be in harmony with God's purposes or not? He says, you know now what to do. You have the tools. You have the resources. Not to avail of them, he said, isn't just arrogance, although it is that. It is also sin. So that's one way this verse fits. But there's another way in which I think it also fits. Sometimes our planning for the future, which is important, as we've seen, can interfere with present obedience to things he's asked us to do very clearly. For example, career planning can sometimes help make, enable us to, or lead to making decisions that rob precious time and energy from our families. We live in a society, especially in the corporate world, that thinks nothing of ordering people to grow from A to B so that the bottom line of the company can increase. And then it is up to the individuals to say yes or no for the sake of the family. Well, sometimes our career paths are, are planned so carefully that we sacrifice present obedience, loving our wives and our children and all kinds of things. I've seen people do both things. Say yes and say no. Another kind of planning is the way we plan time. The people like me, very structured individuals who plan our whole week out every week. That can get in the way sometimes of responding in loving and serving when God shows opportunities or throws them into the middle of the week. And sometimes there's anxious planning that both paralyzes present obedience and makes unwise choices for the future. This is the kind of anxiety at a future that you do not know and cannot control. And more often than not, you're planning to avoid those anxious situations. How can I avoid going there? How can I avoid being invited to this people? How can I avoid inviting that person to my home? How can I avoid opening my home at all to anybody? This kind of thing. And you know, again, to give you an opposite example, I mentioned in the prayer time that I had a visit with Sarah and Hank in the hospital yesterday. And you know, it was just beautiful. When I went in there, Sarah had a book open. She was book open to the Psalms and Bonhoeffer's prayers, letters and papers from prison, uh, just writing and, and sharing. And at one point, you know, they don't quite know now where Hank has to go as far as his uh, rehabilitation is concerned. We'll be closer to where she is. We'll be o way over at the other end. Lots of anxiety possible because there's so many options in the future. And you know, just such a beautiful spirit. Those of you who know Sarah can imagine her saying this. She said, you know, so in the, in various well-meaning people, she said, I've been focusing my attention there. She said, all I've been telling them is, I live one day at a time and I'm listening to Jesus every day. That's the, that's the kind of planning for the future that doesn't interfere with clear present obedience, which is probably her salvation. So let me add the third thing. Wise planning is appropriate and necessary it needs to be carried out in humble dependence upon God, availing of all of the resources to know what God's will is, and it must never hinder present obedience to things that have been clearly mentioned. So those are three things that kind of come out from uh, James's text. 
So now he moves from the issue of uh, planning to specifically the issue of possession because these people that have been traveling all over have been traveling to make money. And so his mind moves in that direction to another group of people that also are involved in making money who also don't think about death and things like that, but a very different group of people because his tone changes completely. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. His words have shifted from exhorting Christian people who might have been infiltrated with the world's view of arrogant and self-confident planning to condemnation, outright flat condemnation of a group of people who were exploiting and oppressing the poor amongst them. Rich, wealthy landowners who did this were also a common part of first century Palestine and Greco-Roman society. And James reminds them of something. He first of all spells out the kind of things they were doing. First of all he said they, they were living in indulgence. Way beyond anything that was needed. Not only for needs but even for wants. And when they couldn't even spend what they had on themselves. When they were so indulged that they didn't have anything more. They didn't still use the money for anything else. They just hoarded it. Thirdly. They were fattening their accounts. By refusing to pay wages to daily laborers. Most of the laborers in those days were daily laborers. You remember Jesus' parable about all these guys who were hanging around waiting to get a job. You know. And day laborers needed to be paid at the end of each day because their food depended upon it. And so by withholding daily wages from day laborers, they were in fact sentencing whole families to misery and in some cases starvation and even death, which is why the word murdering. And then fourthly, they used their wealth in the law courts to further deprive them of justice and what was appropriately theirs. And so just a pretty, uh, pretty severe, and by the way, there are people like this all over the world. Indentured la- la- landowners who have indentured slaves. Uh, it's just scary. And this is exactly what they do in so many parts of the world. And so they were around. And James says to them, look, you don't even think about life. Let me tell you what happens on the other side of death for you. And he doesn't pull any punches. He says, weep and wail, misery is coming. That's Old Testament prophetic language for ultimate judgment. Secondly, he says, you guys who are fattening yourself right now by self-indulgence, just think of the way you fatten animals for the slaughter. That's exactly what you're doing to yourself. A second image for coming judgment. Thirdly, he says, uh, you're taking all these poor people to court right now? Other side of the grave? You're going to be in court. And you're in court. Guess who's going to be on the witness stand? Your wealth. All this wealth that you've hoarded is going to appear in the witness stand and it's going to be, say two things about you. The first thing that hoarded wealth will say, this is where the man's heart was. Remember what Jesus said? Where are your treasure is, your heart is? He said, you want to see this guy's heart? Look at all this thing, I'm sitting here. And then it will be a witness in a second sense. Instead of blessing the poor, instead of helping people, it was simply hoarded. And fourthly, Jesus says to them, or, or James says to them, 
These people whom you have defrauded, God is hearing their cries. I mean, you talked about God hearing our cries. He says He's hearing their cries. And He says He is the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts, which is a title in the Old Testament which specifically uh, sets forth the power of God as a controller of a vast army of angels who will do His will. In other words, He's saying is the cries of these people are going up to a God who is so powerful, who can do anything He wants. Basically what He's saying is there's no escape for you guys. You're finished. You're dead in the water. This is what's going to happen to you. So what about us? We're not in this category of people. Every one of us are laborers, depending on somebody else to pay us, in most cases. We're not headed for this kind of condemnation that these people are. So maybe the tendency to say, okay, we can now skip over. Thank you for this paragraph. Let's move over to the next one. We're not that fast. And everything in the scriptures is intended for us to reflect on. And this passage of scripture has some things in it that will, should at least make us stop, they made me stop and reflect all over again. Because of the fact that Jesus said, and others, the scripture uniformly says that wealth poses a genuine threat to true discipleship. And please, for the purposes of this message, when I say wealth and richness, don't think of one or two people in our congregation, okay? It's all of us. You got food, shelter, clothing, access to clean water, you're unbelievably rich in this world. And so it, it, this, what I'm going to say applies to every single one of us. Maybe a little bit more so to some than to others, but it applies to every single one of us. Wealth poses a genuine threat to true discipleship. Therefore, therefore, there are three questions that we must regularly ask ourselves. There's probably more than three, but these three came from this text, at least for me. First of all, we need to ask ourselves, is my spending on wants, not needs, is my spending on wants reasonable or is it indulgent? And by the way, I can't give you an answer for any one of these questions. You know why? Because I'm responsible only to answer it for myself. I can pose the questions, you then have to wrestle with it. Is, the, is, is what I spend on wants, not on needs, is what I spend on wants, is it reasonable or is it indulgent? You come to my house, you won't find things there only that I need. There are things in there that I want and they are there. And so all of us are like that. Most of us are like that. So it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Secondly, we need to ask ourselves, am I saving or hoarding what could be used to remove human misery? How do you distinguish? How do you, how do you know when saving has become hoarding? Here are a couple of questions you might want to ask. Is it a reasonable provision for the future whose primary goal is to extend my usefulness for the kingdom of God? Or is it protection against every imaginable thing that can go wrong? Or provision for every imaginable thing that I might need? The, the, the Freedom 55 mentality, you know. So those are a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves. Thirdly, remember we talked about in the last days, you're doing all this in the last days. The last days in the New Testament are the final age when God's purposes are reaching their climactic fulfillment. So here's the question we need to ask then. Do my finances reflect the last day's mindset and agenda? Is accelerating and contributing to and making God's purposes in its multifaceted, multi-dimensional uh, way, in a manner keeping with who God has made me to be through the gifts and the passion that He's given to me, are the way I dispose of my worldly possessions and resources reflecting in some way the priority of the divine agenda or not? Those are at least three questions that come, came to me as I looked at this passage. One more thing I should say. The motive, what's the motive for all this? The motive for all this isn't some kind of uh, uh, painful self-flagellation that we impose on ourselves. 
as if we're going to pay God back for His amazing salvation. That's an insult to grace. Nor is it fear. Fear of judgment. What is then? What then is an appropriate motivation when we look at this particular dimension of our lives? Actually, Jesus said it's because of a greater treasure that you are laying up for yourself. Where moth and rust will not corrupt. And in First Timothy chapter 6, he says this, Command those who are rich, that's all of us, in this present world, not to be arrogant, same theme as in James, not to put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put our hope in God, who richly provides with us everything for our enjoyment. So there's space for needs and wants in there. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Notice this words. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves. Same language as James. Laying up. Laying up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take a hold of life that is truly life. That's what Jesus is interested in. That's what the New Testament is interested in. Not self-flagellation or fear, but taking a hold of abundant living right now. So that's the second um, section, I think, in this passage. First, how, how thinking about the uncertainties of life and the reality of eternity, what happens on the other side of the grave, ought to affect us when it comes to our planning, when it comes to our possessions. And now finally, the third area, in the whole area of persevering under trials and difficulties. So James says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Now he's of course shifting to this other group. He's, he just finished speaking to the, to the persecutors and he says, you, the community of God's people, are the ones that are primarily being persecuted. And you're the ones who are not getting paid. You're the ones who are being taken to court. And earlier on he talked about that in James chapter 2 as well. And he said, so what do you do? He says, be patient until the Lord's coming. He's reminding them that their cries are being heard. He's reminding them that the justice that they want is going to be meted out. But he says, not by you. <laughs> he said, I don't want you to be impatient for this justice. The timing is still in my hands. You persevere and you be patient. Maybe there's a, a veiled and an implied warning against the, the, the mindset of the zealots that community will continually take matters into their own hands in terms of revenge, in terms of pressing the issue. He uses the analogy of a farmer. The farmer in Israel, after he'd done his work of plowing, after he'd done his work of sowing, had to wait for two things that he had no control over. The October rains and the March rains. <laughs> one in the early time and one just before the harvest. Without either one of them fail, the crops would fail. And he could do absolutely nothing about either one. He just had to wait. <laughs> and he said, just like the farmer waits for the autumn and the spring rains, you just wait. Wait for judgment to come. Leave that in my hand. And you continue your present obedience. Because the Lord's coming is near. So that much is easy to understand. And then he adds these words. He says, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He shifts the whole focus. He's, first of all, he says, God is near, so don't worry about all these people. I'm going to take care of them. Now he says, God is near, be careful. In a totally different setting, he says, don't grumble against one another. Why, when he is talking to a bunch of people who are being persecuted and under pressure, why is he warning them about grumbling against each other? Uh, somebody in the congregation sent me an absolutely fascinating article you know, that I read. It was about some very interesting research that was done. And those of you who are horrified at the thought of uh, animals and whatnot being used for research, please this is, don't comment upon that. This is not a sermon about that subject. It's a research that I want to get across to you. 
Well, they, they did some tests. The, the article was called uh, Redirected Aggression. And they did some, a test with the, one of these rats that they used for this, and they put it in a cage, and they would periodically apply shocks to it. And this rat, as expected, would just go crazy and bounce against the walls of the thing and, and whatnot. But after a few times, the rat goes completely uh, quiet and just passively waits until it dies. Then when they did a post-mortem on it, they found two things, stomach ulcers and enlarged adrenaline glands, both of which apparently are indicators of strong stress. Here's the important thing. They redid the experiments with two rats in there. Each time the shock was given, the rats started fighting with each other. The amazing thing is they lasted much, much longer. And when they did the post-mortem on them, no enlarged adrenal glands and no stomach ulcers. The per so the redirected aggression was actually enabling them to bear up under the stress without internal damage. Now, of course, no such tests have been done on human beings. <laughs> but James tells us, you're no different. When we are under pressure, we lash out at the people who may be closest to us, who are not responsible for the pain. Because it actually helps us cope with it. <laughs> All James is saying is, understandable, but not allowed. Because the judge is at the door. <laughs> so, let's face it, folks. We know it, right? You know we do that. All of us do that. We lash out at the people closest to us. It's redirected aggression. I've learned a new phrase. <laughs> and James says it's not allowed. You need to remind yourself that God is at the door. Maybe you also need to remind yourself this person isn't responsible for the pressure that I'm feeling at this particular moment. And so he just reminds them to be patient. Again, remember both of this is because of a focus on the other side of the grave. A focus on eternity. Focus on the unseen. God is near. And when the Bible says God is near in this sense, nearness in New Testament vocabulary doesn't mean tomorrow. It can be tomorrow, but it doesn't mean necessarily tomorrow. We've been in the last days for over 2,000 years now. It basically means we're in the final stages of the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes. So live in the light of that. And then he gives, uh, shifts the, uh, gives them another example. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He doesn't mention which prophet. Probably my number one candidate would be Jeremiah. 55, 60 years, he not only faced persecution from outside his own people, his own brothers, sisters, everybody was against him. They called him a traitor. So every direction he was getting pressure. And he was continuing to, to um, proclaim uh, God's word. And Isaiah probably was similar as well. Uh, as you know, we consider blessed those they have persevered. And he says, you've heard of Job's, and now he mentions the name. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but it struck me as rather strange that they would use Job because Job was not my example of a man who endured well under perseverance. <laughs> he was self-righteous. He was complaining all the time that he had done nothing wrong. He insisted on an audience with God. And he said, when I meet God, I will be able to prove my innocence. Now, that was Job. Doesn't sound like a startling example of perseverance under pressure. So what's he doing here? Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, at the very least, he, he kept God in the picture. He didn't do what his wife counseled him to do, just curse God and die. He, he never did that throughout the whole thing. So there's some element of perseverance there. But I think to me, the focus was elsewhere. He says, you've heard of Job's perseverance and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Like everything else in the scriptures, God is the focus, God is the hero. The stories are intended to make us look at the God of these people. And when you see what did God finally bring about for Job, look at chapter 42. The study guide has more verses in there, but here are a few verses. My eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
He got his audience with God and he got to know God better as a result of that. Therefore, and that always happens, when you get to know God better, you get to know yourself better. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He finally stopped justifying himself. And then thirdly, this also happens, somebody who knows God better and knows themselves better is usually in a very good situation to pray for other people. And verse 10 says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again. And then all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before him came and comforted and consoled him. God did these four things for Job. He got his audience with God as a result of which he got to know God better. He got to know himself better. He became an effective intercessor for people and he received comfort and consolation and in this particular case prosperity as well. Now you and I today are not facing the kind of pressure that uh, maybe the audience and James' time was facing. But every one of us have known pressure in our lives because of the fact that we are Christians. Sometimes from family members, from our neighbors, in places of work, in community issues that we may be a part of. When that pressure comes, wherever it comes from, what are we to do? How do we live? Well, we live in the light of eternity, first of all. The Lord is standing at the door, so be patient. Your cries are being heard, in this case for justice. Don't take matters into your own hands. <laughs> Don't lash out at people next to you. Don't grumble against one another. Because again, God is at the door. And you might be in judge because of that. Have nothing to do with redirected aggression. And then continue from the last from Job. Continue to seek God. Seek an audience with Him. You will get to know Him better. You will get to know yourself better. You will have the ministry of intercession opening up for you as a result of that. Because if you know God better, know yourself better, you will find yourself praying more effectively. And you will receive comfort and consolation. And you may or may not receive prosperity as well. So those are the three dimensions of our life. Planning, possessions, and perseverance under pressure. That come from an appropriate understanding of time and eternity. The unpredictableness of our life but it is still lived under the sovereignty of God's control and the certainty of death and the certainty of eternity and blessing or judgment at the other end of that. These are not the things that we normally like to talk about. But James says, thinking about these things is what will enable you to live wisely in all these three areas. And they are all part of our lives, every one of our lives. We all have to plan because we don't know the future. We all have possessions that we need to deal with wisely. And we all face pressure of various kinds. Nothing could be more practical than these three issues. And yet, something so even morbid, you would think, as thinking about brevity of life, certainty of death, and eternity after that, are absolutely essential to living wisely in this area. I want to finish this message by, and preparing us for our response time, by talking about one phrase that I haven't said anything so far. If you've been following me in your Bibles, and some of you do, I haven't said much about this phrase, and stand firm. He says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. In the original language, it means strength. the words are strengthen your heart. And so as I began thinking about strengthening our heart, what that means, it occurred to me that James has been carrying comments on the heart all the way through. For example, in chapter 1, he says, if any one of you considers yourself religious but cannot control your tongue, you deceive yourself. And the phrase in the original is, you have a deceived heart. Then in chapter 3, he talks about bitter 
selfish ambition and envy. We talked about that. He says, and again in the original, it's a reference to an envious heart. And then in chapter 5, we talked about these people who were indulging themselves. The literal translation is a stuffed heart. You know, again, he brings the heart. So there's a deceived heart, there's an envious heart, and there's a stuffed heart that he's talked about. In the light of all of that, he's called for a purified heart. Last week we looked at that. He said, draw near to God, resist the devil, purify your hearts, make them one, make them united. And now today he's talking about strengthening our hearts in the light of the Lord's coming. The heart, the heart, Proverbs says, is the wellspring of life. It's the central core of our existence that spills over and touches everything else. And so throughout this book, James is concerned about what is happening at the very core of our being. A deceived heart, an envious heart, a stuffed heart, uh, or a purified and a strengthened heart. We began with Jobs. We moved to Job. We're going to get back to Stephen Jobs again. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment and failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. And if a man who was not a believer, who probably only thought about death and nothing more after that, can live the kind of wise choices in certain, certain areas at least of his life that he's made, how much more is it true for you and me? Who don't just have to end with death but to think in terms of the eternity for which we are living, how much more will we be enabled to make wise choices and the big choices of our lives? I want to pause for a minute. We've been learning through the study of James to listen to what God might have to, be, might have to say to us. <clears throat> so I'm just going to pause. As the worship team comes up right now, it's going to take a minute to be quiet. And again, you ask yourself, God, so what? <clears throat> Is there anything that you want me to do, think, Do I need to go back and take a look at this passage? Remember those three questions I asked you to ask yourself about needs versus wants and indulgence, um, reasonable provision for the future versus hoarding. Am I living in the last days with a focus on God's agenda? You may need to ask yourself some of those questions. So maybe the maybe the only thing he's telling you is please think about it during this week. Pick up the study guide. Whatever it is he's saying to you, jot it down. And as I reminded you two or three weeks ago, tell somebody about it soon. So that they can become part of it. Even small groups, share it this week with members of the small group. We're going to wait for a minute. And Father, if just one of us has heard your voice more clearly and will be changed by the power of uh, <clears throat> the Spirit within us transforming our hearts, that is enough for us to praise you and bless you. And so we do. We do bless you in anticipation because you are a God who speaks. You spoke the Son, the Word of God from the depths of your heart into ours. We offer our hearts to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. My benediction came from an unexpected source. Yesterday as I was going over the order of service, I usually pray through each order of service before I come here. And one of the songs we did last night was Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that's how we are used to saying it. But when you read it in written out, there's a comma after the word hark. The word means to listen. We just go right through it. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that's my blessing for you is that this year you will recognize the comma after hark. May you stop every so often during Advent and listen to the angels sing. 
above the circumstances of life in which you find yourself in. He says, stop and hark. And may you hear the angels say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace on those whom his favor rests. May his favor rest upon you. And may you know peace in whatever circumstances you are in. Go in Jesus' name.